In a moment, I'll be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. You can find that on page 891. Uh, but what is a good practice is for us to ask the Lord God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you join me as we prepare to hear God's word? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active. It is able to penetrate the deepest of our thoughts, the greatest of our needs. It is able to reveal your son to us, your gracious love for us. But Father, apart from your Holy Spirit, we can never truly see. So we ask that you would bless not only the reading and the hearing of your word, but the expounding of it as well, that we would hunger to know you and to follow you. So bless this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, do keep your Bibles open at that passage in John chapter 6. We're return to, returning to John after a, a hiatus over the summer season and picking up again where we left off here in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And the lesson of this chapter is that Jesus Christ exceeds all our expectations. The miracle of the 5,000 is told with uh, clarity, simplicity, and brevity. There's none of that filling out or elaboration or flowery language that you often associate with uh, a well-constructed tale that's told. 
And in fact, it fits the story of Jesus as it's come down to us outside of the Christian tradition. For example, we, we know from the Jewish sources, from 1st century and 2nd century Jewish sources, that one of the things that was best known about Jesus are the miracles that he performed. They were remembered long after his departure, even by his opponents. And so Josephus, for example, one of the great Jewish historians of the period, talks about him as a wonder worker. Other rabbis, including Celsus, describe his miracles, his wonders, as something done by sorcery. But the interesting thing is that none of those Jewish, and Jewish, mark you, who were opposed to him, none of those historians or commentators of the period ever denied, never, ever denied, that he performed miracles. And of all the miracles that Jesus performed, none stole the imagination of the masses more than the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, actually, it was 5,000 men because it would be heads of households that are being described. And if you add in their wives and their children, there could be as many as 20,000 people in the crowd, a vast number of people who were fed by Jesus that day. And as I said, the lesson of the passage is that Jesus exceeds all our expectations. He exceeded the expectations of the people then. And there are a number of ways in which he accents by his action what he is about to do in this mountaintop experience. There were already people buzzing with questions about who Jesus was. Already in John's gospel, people have been discussing his identity and asking questions about his identity. Jesus has regularly been asked what witnesses he can bring to bear on who he is and what his work is about. And so the previous section in chapter 5 is a section in which Jesus begins to marshal the witnesses to his many messianic position. And uh, there are those who are thinking perhaps he is going to be a prophet. There's been reference to, to Moses. In fact, Jesus has told the people that he's speaking to that Moses, their great hero, accuses them. Accuses them because they won't believe in him. Uh, that's his charge at the end of chapter 5. So Moses is on Jesus' mind, and it's on the minds of the crowds that have been listening to Jesus. And with Moses on his mind, Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee from the inhabited western side to the eastern side to the desert, to the wilderness there. And the crowds follow him. They can't keep away from him. They follow around until they find Jesus on a mountain or perhaps a plateau, a high plateau in the region. And it's there that Jesus sits down with his disciples. And we're reminded again, not only of the place, but of the time. It was the Passover, another link with Moses. Moses is in Jesus' mind. It's the Passover period that's coming up. So Moses is in the minds of everyone else. Moses, the great redeemer of Israel. And it's there, as the crowd come to him, that Jesus performs this great miracle. And it all starts 
with a test. Jesus says to Philip, he asks this question of one of his foremost disciples from that region of Galilee, Philip who had professed faith in the Lord Jesus, he begins with the man who had professed faith in him and he challenges this man. He says, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? And that was a test of this man. In fact, you find that right here there is a, there's a pattern that you find throughout Scripture of God regularly testing His people. Will they trust Him? What do they expect of Him? Is their expectation of Him simply what they themselves could achieve in their own strength? Or do they expect more from Him than can be resolved at a human level. Here is this massive crowd of people, I say nearly 20,000 perhaps, people who are gathered, men, women, and children. All they have is one boy's packed lunch. How is this group of people going to be fed? And Philip's response immediately, of course, is that he answers at the very level that Jesus is trying to expose in his heart. He, he, they, he answers at the level of what is humanly possible. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But what I want to point out is that this way in which God tests and Jesus is testing Philip is part of a pattern that you find emerging in the Scripture. And the very pattern that's emerging in the Scripture is pause for thought about precisely who Jesus is. You remember way back in in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Moses, to Abraham, the father of faith. And God comes to Abraham, and we're told in, Gen in Genesis 22 verse 1 that God tested Abraham. And he tests Abraham by telling him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, and take him out into the desert and offer him as a sacrifice there. Will Abraham believe God? Will Abraham believe that God is able to do something exceptional? Does he believe that God can raise the dead? And the New Testament writers say that, Moses, that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. And he went out to offer his son Isaac in obedience to the word and will of God. That was a good place. That was a test that Abraham passed. It was a great test right at the very beginning of the Bible story. But in the history of Israel, there were tests, and those tests were not passed. I think of Exodus chapter 15, the story of Marah. Marah was a bitter spring. The people had come out of Egypt. They were in the desert. The desert is hot. They are thirsty. They cannot get anything to drink, they come across a spring. Someone reports this in the distance. They arrive at that spring. They, they bend down. They, they try to drink it, but it's a bitter spring. And they do what Israel always did. They, they start to whine and cry, uh, and they cry to God, and they cry against Moses, and they say to Moses, what kind of leader are you that you bring us here and there's this bitter spring? And the people grumble against Moses saying, what shall we drink? But you're the one who's supposed to be providing for us. Then look at Moses. And Moses, you remember, he looks at God 
And he cries to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord, we read, made for them a statute. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the people of the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And there at Marah, Israel was tested. And in the next chapter, Israel is tested again. In Exodus 16, this time they're in the desert. This time they're hungry. And they start to complain. Well, of course they do. They come to Moses and they grumbling. There's this rumble of discontent and grumbling beneath the surface, this kind of chuntering, murmuring discontent among the people of God. And they, speaking about Moses, they say to him, listen, you brought us out of Egypt. You want us to die in the desert, in the wilderness. In fact, would that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt rather than out here. We wish we had died there uh, by the meat pots and ate bread to the full and then died rather than be here and have nothing to eat and die here. And they're complaining against the Lord. And God says through, Mo uh, through Moses to the people of Israel, he says to them, I'm about to rain bread upon you. You're going to get swamped with bread that I may test you whether you'll walk in my law or not. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? And then in Deuteronomy chapter 13, God again through Moses speaks to them about his purpose. In Deuteronomy 13 and verse 3, and he says, you know, if a prophet or a dreamer arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let's go after other gods. So here's somebody comes along and they look like a prophet, they sound like a prophet, they act like a prophet, they have miracles like a prophet. And he tells you to go after other gods, gods you have not known, and to serve them. You shall not follow this man, God says, because I am testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. And walk after the Lord to fear him. So here we have Jesus, you see. And in that great pattern of divine testing, Jesus begins this miracle with a test for Philip. Philip, do you think I can do super, abundantly, more than you can ask or think? Philip, do you trust me to exceed your expectations? Do you think that this people are here in the desert, far away from McDonald's and nowhere to go to get a snack or a sandwich for their lunch? Do you think that this is out of my control? What are you going to do about this, Philip? Where are we going to get bread? It's a test. And there are things in life, do you know, that God permits in your life that are tests of whether you trust Him. Whether he is your confidence or whether you put your confidence in other things or people or places or institutions or whatever it might be. Jesus is testing these people. Just as he tested Abraham, 
Just as he tested Israel, so he's testing Philip, and so he tests us. And Philip? Philip puts his confidence in the flesh, do you see? How does he respond? He responds in purely natural terms. He says, you know, even if we had 200 denarii, 200 denarii represent a single worker's wages for over 200 days' work. It would not come near feeding a crowd this size. Even if we had the money, we couldn't do it. We don't have the money. All we've got is this boy. Two dried fish and little barley rolls. Now that's the background of the miracle. It starts with a test. Jesus tests his people. And then secondly, Jesus surprises his people. You go back to the story again and listen to it as it's unfolding for us here in John chapter 6. They bring this boy to Jesus. Jesus gets them to sit down in arranged format and he takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he distributes them to those who are seated and fish as much as they wanted. And they're fed, the whole multitude is fed. And once again, there's a continuity here in the scripture. Go back, for example, to Numbers chapter 11. Moses was on their mind. In Numbers chapter 11, there's this great incident that we hear about when once again the people of God complain. They complain in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned uh, among them and consumed some of them. And uh, God comes to them and he makes a promise that he's going to feed them with manna from heaven. In Numbers uh, 11 verse 13, uh, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Moses asked the question, where am I to get meat to feed all this people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. He's talking to God here, by the way. <laughs> if you treat me like this, kill me at once. I can't, I can't carry all this alone on my own, he says to God. The people are being tested. The people are grumbling. And God describes what he's going to do for them. The manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance like that of the delium. And the people went out and gathered it. And the ground in hand, in hand mills to beat it in mortars and boil it in pots and make cakes of it. And they made, this is where manna bread starts. With manna. Never mind. Um... <clears throat> So they're grumbling against the Lord. God gives them this great provision. They have the great provision of the manna. God intervenes on their behalf. You find the same thing in 2 Kings chapter 4. And in many ways, 2 Kings chapter 4 is a direct background to the story that we're reading about Jesus. This time it's Elisha. Do you know that in Israel, three prophets were often regarded together. They kind of blended into one another in the minds of the Jews, and these were, these were Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. 
Remember, Elijah and Elisha are almost like one prophet in that Elisha does what he does in the spirit and power of Elijah. He receives his anointing, in a sense, through Elijah. He carries on the work of Elijah. In some ways in which the Holy Spirit carries on in the, in the apostles, in the New Testament, the work that Jesus d- did in the spirit and power of Jesus. So the Jews often had these two these figures together, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, which is why when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he meets with Moses and Elijah. These three men constituted the imagination of the Jew as to what a prophet looked like and how a prophet acted in the world. And there was this, this great need that arose in Second Kings chapter 4. A great need that arose... And there was hunger, and people were needing to be fed. And a man from Bil Shalasha bringing bread and first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. But his boy said, his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and and have some left. And he set it before them and they ate, and some was left over according to the word of the Lord. Now the interesting thing is that the word for boy in John chapter 6, it's a very rare word. It's never used anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. And the only other place it's used is in the in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's used of the boy, the servant, that served Elisha when Elisha fed this company of people. So there's a background, you see, to this story. In other words, what's happening here in John chapter 6 is identifying Jesus with a continuity of the work of God. God's work has been going on. God's done things like this before. There's a definite connection. Jesus is a prophet like Elisha, like Moses. He is in that stream of divine revelation. This is something that there's a background to in history. But not only a background to in history. This is something that has been expected in the history of Israel. Because over and over again in the history of Israel, there were prophecies of a a latter days feast when God would provide out of nothing. He would provide for the people of God. And so in Joel chapter 2, God says, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil and you'll be satisfied. Or in Amos 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Or Isaiah chapter 25, uh, verses 6 to 9, On the mountain of the the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a uh, feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And here in John's Gospel, John has already told us one story of Jesus turning 500 gallons of water into 500 gallons of the very best well-aged wine. And now Jesus is providing food for the people here in the desert. In other words, these great 
prophecies of God's word that in the last days there would be a messianic banquet when God would feed his people are coming true in the reality of these people's experience. So all of this that's happening is, is underlining what? Well, it's underlining continuity. Jesus in continuity with Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Jesus in the flow of God's prophecies and of the future that are to come. Jesus is in the flow of all of that. But there's also discontinuity. There's discontinuity. And this discontinuity is thrown into sharp relief by the response of the people to the miracle. Now, the miracle itself is an amazing thing. Everybody gets fed. There are 12 baskets left over, 12 disciples, 12 baskets. Uh, Jesus restores Israel, all kinds of theories and ideas as to why the 12 baskets left over, perhaps simply to show the extravagance of the provision that Jesus makes evidence of the authority with which the father clothes the son. But what's the response of people? Well, the response of people is that when they saw this great miracle that Jesus had performed, they thought he was a prophet. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. They're thinking of Moses predicting the coming of the prophet. God says to Moses, there'll come one after you who will be like you, who will be my man. What he says will come true. What he says will be the very word of God. He'll speak the very word of God to the people of God. And they thought, this is him. This is it. This is he. This is the prophet. And you remember, they're running these three prophets into their, together in their minds. Moses, Elijah, Elisha. They're thinking of the signs that Moses did, and Elijah did, and Elisha did. And those signs authorized what they said it authorized their role as prophets in Israel. People saw the signs and they believed that these were appointed by God. And when the people saw the signs, they said, this is the prophet that's come into the world. But I want you to notice that these people did not really understand the miracle that Jesus had just performed. Down in verses 32 and 33 of chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's Jesus talking to them. Here's the discontinuity that you need to get in your head. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, he's saying to them, when you think of me as a, like a prophet, being like a prophet like Moses, and by extension Elijah and Elisha, when you look at me and you think that I'm a prophet like Moses, don't draw the parallel too tightly. I am, but don't draw the parallel too, light, too tightly because I'm more than a prophet. Do you think it was Moses that gave you the bread in the desert? The manna from heaven? It was God who gave it. And just watch now what's happening here. With Moses, Moses prayed to God and God dropped the bread from heaven. There was manna in the morning scattered all around the camp and they had to go out and gather 
the manna. What's happening in this miracle? Jesus is taking bread and fish in his hand and he prays over it and he distributes it. He distributes it. He distributes it. He's going distributing all day long, distributing bread to, and, and fish to his disciples. All day long he's giving them bread and fish. Jesus' arms are sore by the end of the day. He's been distributing enough bread and fish to feed this multitude of 20,000 people. He says, do you see what's going on here? Moses stood back and let God do the work. What's going on in in front of your eyes at this very moment. It is I who am feeding the multitude. I am feeding you. The miracle is occurring in my hands. I am demonstrating to you that I am more than a prophet. I am like Moses, but I am not the same as Moses. I am greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha. Just as the barley, the, the, the manna and the barley are greater the manna and the barley are great things, but the creator of manna and barley are far greater than the ma ma manna and barley themselves. And as the creator of barley and manna, Jesus says, I don't just give the bread of life, I am the bread of life. And actually, at the end of the day, the only thing that can sustain you, the only thing that can satisfy you, the only thing that can meet your need you see my power, but you don't see the glory of how this power will be used. You don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've come to do, what I've come to be, what I've come to give. You don't recognize the glorious power that lies behind me and within me. You don't know what I can do for you. You don't know. You want me for this, but I want to give you something else. You're satisfied to have me to meet this need that you have, that you think this is my need, this is my problem, this is my, this is my issue in my life. This is the thing that I believe if, if only I could use you, Jesus, if you could resolve this issue, this problem, this need in my life, this is what I need you to do for me. And Jesus looks at you and he says, your expectations are too low. I have things to do for you that exceed your expectations. I'm not here to jump to your tune. I'm not here just to give you that little instant moment of happiness or that solve that little problem in your life or big problem in your life that you think if that was solved, everything else would be fine. I have far more to do for you. Far more to give to you. Your expectations are too low. They thought he was a prophet. And they wanted to make him a king, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew. And what we see at the back of chapter 6 is that the crowds did not understand what was going on at all. Verse 26 is the key as to why Jesus withdrew and would have nothing to do with them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you had a short-term need met and you want that again. You're seeking me because I addressed an immediate physical appetite need in your life. And you think, if you could only do that all the time, Lord, it would be great. And you don't get it. You don't get it. I haven't come just to meet that local 
appetite, need, or desire in your life, no matter how big it is to you or no matter how important it is to you, that's not what I've come to do. You want to make me a king because you think if you make me a king, you'll have full stomachs all the time. But you haven't been changed, you see. Nothing radical in your heart has changed as a result of your encounter with me. In other words, Jesus did not come into the world to lend his power to satisfy already existing appetites. That's the things we're conscious of. That's the mistake of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? We think Jesus is there simply to keep, to keep the money coming in. I think that's, to be honest, that's behind a lot of the pressures within the Christian community in the Western world today because we have a fairly easy life and there are pressures within the Christian community that want everybody to dance to their attention and meet their particular felt need or appetite or desire, whatever it may be, to address it. Very me focus. I want you to fix my problem for me. And it leaves them untransformed. It leaves them still craving. The power of Jesus is not given to simply meet their craving. It's here to transform you. It's here to change you. The kind of acclamation that Jesus walks away from, perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew from them. That's what he does. If he thinks for one moment that what you want him for is just to meet your felt need, he'll walk away. He wants to do something far more exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ask or think. He exceeds all our expectations. He wants to do something radical to you. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to make you new. Because you see, Jesus in this story is connected to Moses. There is a connection. But this is the way the connection works. Moses delivered the Torah, the law. He proclaimed the law. But in John's Gospel, chapter 117, Jesus is the Torah that Moses proclaimed. He is the Torah. The law was given through Moses but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He's it. He comes. It comes in him. Moses prayed for manna. Jesus creates it, the bread, and provides the bread. Moses spoke face to face with God, the Bible says. But actually, it wasn't quite face to face, was it? But it was as face to face as any human being ever has. But Jesus... Jesus, we're told in John chapter 1, verse 1, was eternally face to face with God. The Word was face to face with God. Moses was great, but Jesus was greater. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the Son. Moses did what he could do under obedience to the Word of God. Jesus does it. He accomplishes it. Jesus is bigger and better than they thought. 
So what is Jesus doing in this miracle? I think he's opening a door. He's opening a door on who he is to us. He's manifesting his glory to us. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. He's opening a window, if you will, to his glory that we might get excited about, not, not about that we might get excited about how useful he might be in getting from him what we already want from him. He's better than what you want. What you want may be wonderful for you, but it's nothing compared to what he wants to give you. He is better than what you want. He's going to take you and transform you. You see, the Son of God hasn't come into the world to give you bread. He has come into the world to be your bread. And at the back of many of the therapies and many of the popular books that's produced, I think are elements that are meant actually, that have the effect ultimately really of robbing you of what you could have as a child of God. Because what you need is Jesus. John 6, 6, 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And when he gives his flesh on the cross, he becomes bread, the nourishing, satisfying bread of life for sinners. You say to me, well, you know, that's very airy-fairy, Liam. That what I need is Jesus. We're back at the beginning. Or I would rather, Liam, you gave me strategies as to how to deal with my loneliness and my pain and my sorrow. I give you strategies. Jesus wants to give you more. He does. We're right back at the beginning. Philip, how am I going to feed all these people? And what we're doing is we're rooting around in our pockets and wallets and wondering, have we got enough money? Have we got enough denarii here to go and buy the food? Jesus wants Philip, you see, to get to the place where Philip shuts his mouth and takes his hands out of his pockets and says, we've got you. That's all we need. That's all we need. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the classic host who gives abundance. He has come to give you life in all its fullness. Don't settle for less. Back in Cana, there was abundant wine. Here at the mountain in the desert, there is abundant bread. And for you, in him alone, there is abundant life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus, in ways beyond the trite, in deeper ways than we can ever get our heads around, 
the Lord Jesus is all we need. You have given to us in him all things that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And tonight we, we find ourselves tested by your word in Christ. Alone my soul has found and found in him alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Now none but Christ can satisfy. No other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy my Jesus found in thee. Amen.